Uh, we're going to talk with Sal Burroughs momentarily, but it was uh, the announcement yesterday that we're going to talk to Sal about the Manitoba government has laid out its long-awaited homelessness strategy yesterday. The announcement included $58 million in new funding to help people at risk or experiencing homelessness. Global's Rosanna Hempel has more on what Manitoba's Minister of Families had to say. Rochelle Squire says it reflects a shift in the government's approach, which means making sure service providers can focus more on preventing homelessness rather than responding to emergencies. Squire says a big part of that means expanding the province's supply of affordable housing. She says the new money will help create 400 units with wraparound help like employment and mental health supports in the coming months, along with 300 social housing units under a capital contribution program to be launched this year. For far too long, government has been focused on funding services to manage homelessness. During the pandemic, it was made painfully clear that we need to shift our focus to ending homelessness. Squire says the additional funding will also go towards fixing up existing social housing, helping children exit child and family services, and making sure shelters can operate 24-7 during the winter. Marion Willis with St. Boniface Street Links is excited by the announcement, but, but says it also left her with unanswered questions. Willis says she was hoping to hear more about supports for addressing some of the root causes of homelessness, including addictions and mental health issues. Manitoba's Minister of Mental Health and Community Wellness didn't attend the event. It's a pretty blue sky kind of announcement. We don't know what the plan is for the money, really. We don't know... Uh, who's going to decide how decisions will be made on who's going to receive funding. Provided the PC government is re-elected this year, Squire says the investments announced today will be annual commitments. That's Global's Rosanna Hempel with the breakdown of the announcement. Again, $58 million in new funding to help people at risk or experiencing homelessness. Community activist Sal Burroughs, a frequent voice on this topic here on 680 CJOB, joins me now. Good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. And it's great to be on your show. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this discussion, Sal. And, and we'll just start with the announcement itself. Uh, what was your overall impression of it? And then we'll get into uh, where you feel this might lead to or not lead to or what is most needed. But overall, what do you think of the announcement? Well, of course, this is long, long awaited. It, uh, all of those things that have been announced are needed and should have been in place years ago. Um, and, and, you know, the whole concept of Homelessness uh, is, a, uh, is a misnomer in, in many cases because the huge number of people who are homeless and particularly those sleeping rough are, uh, are victims of uh, our addictions uh, and the lack of services around uh, addiction treatment and the lack of uh, uh, action on limiting the amount of uh, illicit drugs that are available on the streets today. And uh, we've got three couple of major reports that have uh, talked about that that haven't been referenced in this uh, in this announcement. What do you make of where this could go? I mean, the announcement's great, Sal, and, and then it depends on what it's going to and how it's going to be dispersed and, and some of the things you just mentioned there. Um, have you heard anything more since the announcement about what some of the plans for it might be? Well, this is a big concern, you know, uh, announcing 700 more units. There's 1,600 vacant social housing units owned by Manitoba Housing. Those could all be opened and operational within a month if uh, if their government is going to open those up. I talked to Marion Willis, who was quoted, uh, who's one of the most effective 
organizations in providing services to the homeless. And she said she could take 30 houses next month and have them open and operational. So we'll see the uh, effectiveness of, you know, are they announcing things that will be starting next year or are they announcing things that will be announced starting next month? But I want to touch on the whole issue of uh, where are the causes? You know, we, my expertise, a lot of my work is, is around the issue of crime and crime prevention, uh, dealing with the reality of people who are homeless at the, at the moment. And addictions and the drug industry is is a major part of this. So I'm just going to segue a little bit to the side of something that's not being talked about. If many people remember Project Matriarch, which is a big drug raid in in North Point Douglas, um, you know, ten houses and and 2.3 million dollars worth of assets were seized from the alleged drug dealer. Uh, that's one little operation. Drug dealing is a major business. People make a lot of money, and it's like a Ponzi scheme. You know, if you're a good uh, drug dealer on the front line, the wholesaler will give you more uh, drugs to sell. And they're out trying to find more people to buy and trying to get more people addicted. So we, we lost 400 human beings to death to, to drug addictions, uh, overdoses last year. And we lost over 50 people to murders, many of them linked to to addiction. So we need a policy that's going to be harm reduction and disrupting the drug dealers. So I'm getting off the topic of what was announced because this is what's being left out. We cannot just hope to to get you know people out of being homeless by just putting them in houses. I've dealt with situations where really good programming has been available in uh, Housing First, and the drug dealers have taken over the house, and we had to get the police to raid a Housing First uh, program because they were providing the poor addicts uh, with all the drugs they could take in return for allowing them to sell drugs out of their house. So it's, you know, it's a complex situation. Uh, it sounds good. We need to have all of this money, but we need it active fast, but we also need, desperately need, a program that undermines the sales of drugs. Uh, I, when I make speeches, I say, hey, meth addicts have the best support system you can imagine, 24-7. You want to hit, you know, there's a dealer out there 24-7, and if you can't afford it, they'll give you an advance and say, go steal two bicycles for me uh, and to pay for your drugs. Sorry, I'm getting off the topic here, but it's not simply enough just to have the housing. It's got to be in place fast, and it's got to be linked to helping people getting off being drugs, and we have to deal with the people who are dealing. And they're making a lot of money out of the harm they're doing to our society. You know, Sal, I don't think you're that far off. I know we're talking homelessness itself, but that's this is a great question for somebody like myself who, who isn't on the front lines like you or Marion or, or, or people like this. So what sort of priorities would you put on homelessness? Would it start with the drug trade and, and then go down that way? Would it be building homes? Like, I understand there's three or four factors and, and many more, but three or four main factors that probably affect homelessness. How would you categorize them in order of, of importance? I would put three things immediately all together all at the same time. Housing first, let's get that housing in. Let's get people on, on assistance and get them out of the camps where they can be supported. Uh, disrupting the drug dealers, going after them, 
making it very expensive to be a drug dealer by seizing drugs every chance they can. And thirdly, let's get more Oaks-type centers going. Let's take a look at the AFM and see why is it when somebody decides to get off drugs, they have to wait two, three weeks to get into a treatment program. That should be immediate. Those are the three simplistic answers to a complex question. Yeah, very complex indeed, and I, I get that. Um, it, it, that being said, with the $58 million, uh, is that enough? Is that more than you expected? Is this, I mean, obviously it's a great news and, and great um, uh, movement by the government, um, but again, not being on the front lines, uh, uh, to, to an outsider, $58 million is a lot for, for housing. Um, but if that's not the main issue, just one of them, is, is that enough? Well, it's enough if they can get it out the door fast enough. Right. I mean, as I said, Marion Ellis could take 30 houses uh, next week as long as the money to operate them came with it, and she could have people in those very fast. Other agencies could do the same. How fast can they do it? Or this is something they're announcing, and it won't actually quite happen before the election happens in October. Sorry, just don't want to be too cynical. Uh, I know the minister. I know she cares about this this issue, but let's see. Let's get that, those houses out there. Let's get some of those 1,600 Manitoba housing units that exist right now into the hands of organizations that can get Housing First operating. Let's get that that piece. That's one piece, a very important piece. And let's get those. Uh, let's see how fast Manitoba housing can operate. Uh, Building 300 more units, that's, that's a year and a half, two years away. And, uh, you know, that's how long it takes to get, you know, something in the ground and being built. Uh, I see the, the weakness, one of the problems we've always had with Manitoba housing is when, when the, somebody moves out, it takes them six months to a year to get the walls painted and the, and the drywall fixed to get them back out onto the market again. Let's get those turned around. The private sector can do it in three weeks. Let's go those housing, those 1,600 Manitoba housing units back on the on the market into the hands of organizations that will do housing first really fast. That's one piece. But at the same time, we have to disrupt the drug dealers that are creating more addicts, creating more homeless as the same time as we're trying to assist them. And we need more action so when somebody wants to get off drugs wants to get out of being homeless that they can get into a treatment program really fast were you involved in any of this process with the provincial government in in deciding this new 58 million dollars in funding or even at the municipal level with the city at all recently sell no um you know i've expressed my opinion from the outside and i think certain people have listened but no i was not involved uh, one of the things that we con- are concerned about is that, you know, people who work for government and work for agencies are very needful of getting more assets, more money f- to operate. They're very, very good programs. And so we it, getting things that are looking outside the existing systems uh, sometimes are a little more difficult. Indeed, yeah. And so um, going forward then, and I, I think that's probably the biggest priority with the announcement now, good news, but um, how fast it's implemented. Yes, and uh, is it going to get into the hands of organizations that are ready and willing to move fast? And uh, we do not need to have 1,200 homeless people in Winnipeg. We don't need to have another 5,000 that are uh, 
precariously housed, and we don't need the crime and the human destruction that comes with the drug addiction, the growth in the number of people who are addicted to drugs at the same time. These are all very linked. Yeah, and you mentioned you didn't want to be cynical because you know the minister cares, and I believe that too, Sally. It's just a matter of what they can do and, and how much they they sort of care can find with all the other issues in the province. Um, so I'm not trying to be cynical either, but do, do you feel this is an announcement because of an election year, or do you feel this is a sincere announcement from the government? I think it's both. I just think they should have done the sincere announcement two years ago. And uh, so the cynicism comes how, how close it is to the election. Uh, these are all things that need to be done. I don't think it matters which political party is in. All of these things and more need to be done. We don't, Winnipeg does not want to be a city with 56 murders, 400 homeless people, uh, people dying from overdoses. That's not the Winnipeg I grew up in and I love. And we need action. We need action now. And it's, uh, it's got to be more than just more of the same. How are you feeling overall, Sal? Well, you know, I wouldn't be still involved. I just turned 79. I wouldn't still be involved if I wasn't an optimist. So I'm, uh, I'm feeling uh, there are people who care about these issues. Uh, we have to stop being ideological. The, the people are fighting over uh, harm reduction and, uh, and enforcement. We need both. And we need all the people to get on side and support each other and use every single mechanism we have to save people from the horrible life that comes and leads up to be dying from an overdose, dying in a bus shelter. That's not our Winnipeg. Well, and uh, I, for one, and I'm sure many in the homeless community and non-homeless community are happy that you have not lost that optimism, especially at your age, and keep up the great work, Sal. But you sound like you're only 50, so good for you. <laughs> I just got, I went to the gym this morning. To stay fit. <laughs> well, you're ahead of me, and now you've motivated me, Sal. So thank you for joining me today, not only on this, but just for being you. Thanks, sir. Okay. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. Sal Bye-bye. Burrows, all that great insight and information, and went to the gym today. I mean, uh, just a, a, a very, very important figure in our community. Well, uh, skate tomorrow and then head to Edmonton to take on the Oilers in the home and home series. Both games right here on 680 CGOB on the weekend. Uh, the home game, Wasak night on Saturday. I'll be on the broadcast with Kelly Moore and the rest of the crew for that one. So looking forward to it. But lots to get to around the trade deadline prior to all of that. And our good friend from the fourthperiod.com editor in chief there, David Pagnata, joins me now. And David, I sincerely appreciate you when you join us anytime. But Today and going forward uh, this week is extremely welcomed <laughs> because it is unbelievably busy. I just had Kelly Moore, who's been doing HL NHL games for probably 130 years. Uh, Ken Weeb and I from Sportsnet were talking yesterday in, in 25 to 30 years of experience. Never remember a deadline like this. Have you ever been a, a, a seen a deadline this busy? Not like this. Not not with the amount of activity that has stretched out uh, over a few weeks. Um, and obviously, the last what five six days have been bananas. But um, it, it definitely seems like uh, there's. Um, sorry, as I'm getting texts just about some other stuff. Uh, it, it definitely sounds like there's there's a lot of activity still to come. 
Um, but from what we've seen in these last few days, going back to, uh, I guess, Friday, um, it, it's been one thing after another. And the talk is consistent. Uh, <laughs> I think Yarmo Kekalainen uh, said it earlier today that it's, it's, it's so busy, there's a ton of calls and there's no sleep. Uh, so that's, pro- <laughs> that, that's probably how the next 48 hours are going to roll. So, and I don't even have time to get into the Dylan Larkin contract, uh, Jonathan Quick trade after the game last night versus the Jets, and and now you're putting out the the information that it looks like Vegas is interested in Jonathan Quick and all that because we have to talk Jets. But I agree with you, like the busyness of it, the length of it over the past couple of weeks, and just the names. The other part of it before we talk Jets that stands out to me. Somebody asked me this yesterday, what's the most bizarre part of this? Is how busy it is. I go, no, the most bizarre part is teams that are like five six points out of it, like Nashville and Washington, just calling it in and, and going we're sellers I don't remember teams that close just going okay let's get what we can get this far out of the deadline yeah it doesn't happen often I, I I'm try, I've been trying to remember I, I, a number of years back I know Anaheim did it and they actually made the playoffs like they sold a few play, uh, pieces and they got into the eighth seed um, I think there's another circumstance where that happened I can't remember who it was um, I, I remember the Ducks but I mean this is this is going back you know, anywhere, I don't know, 12 years within, within the last 10 to 12 years, I think was, that's when that happened. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, when, when you, when you look at the competition that's out there and Detroit, you know, they got Larkin signed, like you said, but they're listening on a bunch of guys now uh, after the two back-to-back losses to Ottawa on Monday and Tuesday, um, they're, they're just being realistic about their situations. Uh, like Washington has told its players, the core guys that are still there, we're not retooling. We're not rebuilding. We're just going to readjust on the fly and get back into it next season to compete for a, a playoff spot and, and, and a cup. Detroit wants to get into contender status again next year. So they're going to tinker now, and then they'll make some, some solid changes in the summer, they hope, and, and, and get into a better position next season. It's just being realistic with uh, where things go. And, you know, I think that's basically where some of these teams are at. And, and one team that's, Real, I mean, I guess there's two teams right now that are really fighting it and bouncing back and forth, Florida in the East, Calgary in the West. They, they both have opportunities to sell, and they both have some opportunities to potentially add, um, and they may end up doing both, but those teams are teeter, teetering at the moment. And it's interesting it's those two teams that also probably had the biggest off-seasons of any teams and both looking at not right. making the playoffs compared to where they were last year. It's just been a really exciting but yet bizarre NHL off-season last year all the way up until this trade deadline. Um, I said on Jets at Noon today that I, when I see the Shens and the Nyquists and, and those guys of the world go – I think those are team or, or an entities that the Jets would be interested in. Uh, the fact that they're going now, kind of get this, and this is just my own spidey sense, David, that the Jets are in on something a little bit bigger and, and why they're not jumping at some of these minor or smaller moves to add depth. Uh, what are you hearing around the Jets, on my, or am I way off? No, I, I think it's a combination. Um, with, I'll get to the, the bigger stuff in a second, but with the, with the depth-type pieces, there are a lot of teams, and I'm going to throw Buffalo in this mix. I'm going to throw Ottawa in, excuse me, Edmonton in this mix. Um, there are likely a few other teams, that, probably still Tampa, to be honest, um, that are basically just on the outside looking in, in terms of the market. They don't want to jump in all the way because they want to see, are the prices going to drop, and can they pounce on a deal that, you know, maybe a team's looking for a third-round pick for a player, but because we're one hour till the deadline, we'll take a fifth. 
Like some of those teams are looking at that. So we may see the depth type of pieces in that regard happen on deadline day closer to the actual deadline because, you know, some teams want to move guys, uh, but they just want to recoup as many assets as they can. So they'll bite the bullet and say, okay, I'll get a, a fifth instead of a fourth or whatever it may be. Um, so I think Winnipeg and Chevy's kind of in that boat, but at the same time, we've definitely been hearing them kind of looking around and, and kicking the tires on a few things, whether it's Chikrin or, or, you know, Pareko who's on the right side, Chikrin's on the left. Um, you know, those, those types of, defensemen that are out there are they looking to see what type of forwards creep up is it another Niederreiter type of deal where you're getting a guy that's got another year left on his contract or maybe there's a little bit more term on the deal um or is it a bigger tag player like Tyler Bertuzzi and the price is going to drop similar situation to the depth guys I think they're definitely keeping tabs on what's going on and it wouldn't you know wouldn't shock me to see a move or two still happen here with with the Jets over these next, well, now less than 48 hours. It sounds a lot like, and feel free to tell me I'm way off, but Kevin Dayoff is buying a car and he's deciding whether he wants to buy a new one, a used one, and if the price is going to drop or not. Yeah. Yeah, basically. I mean, that, that's that, everybody wants a bargain. Everybody wants a deal. And if you can hold things out, if you could be a little tougher in the negotiation process um, and, and it pays off, beautiful. And if it doesn't, well, you got to make sure you, or you better make sure you got options um and plans a b c and d and and maybe more depending on the type of player you're looking for and how the market is going um so yeah i mean that's that's pretty much it i mean i i think he'd love to be able to say hmm, i'm gonna go either i'm getting a mercedes or i'm getting a bmw or i'm getting a maserati or a ferrari i mean those are every team would love to do that if you've got those types of options but sometimes um you know you got to be realistic and you got to consider you know, downgrading a little bit depending on, again, what, what's out there. Uh, from a defensive market perspective, there's a ton of defensemen that are available. And that we, we, we probably will start to see the dominoes fall again after Ekholm and, and Gavrikov left and went out of the market yesterday. Um, Chikrin's still holding things up. Does it change a few other things? Anaheim's holding out Kulikov and, and Klingberg tonight. I don't think there's anything close yet, but um, precautions – uh, Provorov's getting interest again in and Sanheim as well in Philly, and those guys have a lot of term on their contract, just like Pareko and Krug in St. Louis. Teams are looking to see how can they not only get that top piece, but also can they get a little bit creative, and are we going to see some names coming out of left field here in these next two days? And are the Jets in on all that, or what are you hearing specifically about the Jets? Like, I mean, names are names, but like position-wise, or is it just right. general all of it? Um, it's, you know, before the Niederreiter acquisition, I thought they were looking at mid to bottom six. Um, and the Perfetti injury probably uh, altered their plans a little bit or just gave them a, a hole that needed to be filled. And then, okay, we're still going to look at, at a depth piece, a quality depth piece up front that's mid six interchangeable, but likely bottom six caliber um, overall on, on, a, on a team with quality depth like like the Jets have and go come playoff time for Fetty's healthy, slot the guy down. Now you're rolling, you know, three top tier lines and you've got a sound checking line or, or defensive unit as, um, uh, as, as your fourth line. Uh, so I think they're still in that, in that again, unless something totally falls into their lap uh, up front, I think that's where they'd like to add from a forward position side of things. And then the, it, it, I, I keep hearing the big names, like I, like I had mentioned now, 
they may be because we're starting. Like for example, a few weeks ago, um, some teams started kicking the tires on Colton Pareko, and St. Louis wasn't telling them no, and that started to escalate. And then we started to hear his name more and more and more and more, and now we're at a position where, uh, and it doesn't. I mean, St. Louis is still listening, but it, it would have to be. Uh, there's got to be another piece that has to happen or another move that would happen to complement what St. Louis wants to do if they're moving out a guy like Pareko, for example, who has a full no trade and would have to sign off on a deal anyway. Um, but, you know, those kinds of things happen. And when you hear teams like Calgary or Ottawa or other teams that are focusing in or at least getting calls and not being hung up on, you hear that noise, you want to jump into the mix too. So I think that's where Chevy really is and, and the staff really is in terms of a big name D. I think it's more of an exploratory thing. And if you never know, something falls in, in place, you, you jump on it. Yeah, I, I, and that's something that's been in his M.O. You call him boring, call him patient, but he also went and got Paul Stasny when Paul Stasny was not available, so we'll see. Uh, David, I know how busy it is for you. Uh, Thefourthperiod.com is where you get all the information. You follow David at the fourth period and literally updating m- each minute by minute uh, on there as well. So keep track of David and all the things they're doing at fourthperiod.com for the latest around the NHL. I appreciate it, sir, and, and hopefully you get a Ferrari yourself one day. <laughs> I would, but not, I'm looking outside at, at all this snow. Here. <laughs> I don't think that would work so well. And if you hear anyone wants a 2011 Ford Escape that's starting to rush, you let me know. <laughs> got you. On speed dial. Great stuff, David, as always. Thanks for your time, man. You got it. Take care, buddy.